open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 14, 1 Samuel chapter 14. Last week in 1 Samuel 13, we saw again how that chapter painted the dark picture of a helpless people who are finding out yet again that their own desire to be like all the nations around them would only lead to more and more helpless, hopeless situations. They were literally on the brink of a devastating military disaster and defeat against an enemy with 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. This enemy had already mustered and was now sending out three powerful groups of raiders to terrorize the central hill country of Israel. In stark contrast, most of the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, thickets, among rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul's troops, numbering only a measly 600 men, were completely demoralized. They didn't even have any weapons because the Philistines were strong enough to keep the Hebrews from having their own blacksmiths to produce them. And to top it all off, Saul had disobeyed God's clear instruction through God's prophet Samuel and had been told his reign as Israel's first king, would not be extended. The most important consequence of Saul's sin, however, was that he was now alone, without Samuel, which meant Saul was without God's word to guide him. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 23. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 23. One day, Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his father, Saul, was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at... Magron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Hetub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sinan. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. 
And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we'll cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men, Within, as it were, half a furlough's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who's gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Into the darkness comes God's glorious great light. What a story. Did you notice how this chapter began? It takes the author five verses to set the stage for us. And it's an important stage to set. First we see the secret plan of Jonathan in verse 1. Second, we see in contrast to Jonathan what the rejected leaders are doing in verses 2 and 3. And then third, we see the impossible place 
that Jonathan wants to carry out his plan in verses 4 and 5. So first, we look at the secret plan of Jonathan in verse 1. Now, we've already met Jonathan back in chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, when he took the initiative that Saul should have exhibited and defeated the Philistine garrison at Geba. Now he floats this crazy idea with his armor bearer. Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison or outpost on the other side. Is this really the son of Saul? This particular apple seems to be of a completely different tree. And as far as his personality and spiritual condition is concerned, he's as different from his father as day is from night. One commentator says of Jonathan, he plays an important role in so many different situations that we get to know him quite well. In none of these accounts, and they're far from over, does Jonathan display the least vice Always he acts according to a bold faith and a keen devotion to the Lord and his servants. We know that Jonathan must have been a sinner, yet in his biblical portrayal we see a shining model of Christian manhood, faithful friendship, and devoted service to the cause of the Lord. Jonathan is not blind to the situation he's in, or to the odds, which were definitely not in his favor, or to the craziness of it. And he only wants his armor bearer to hear this. Did you notice? Not his father Saul. In other words, he knows Saul, the king may just sit around forever, because he's already done just that. And he also doesn't want Saul to reject his idea at the outset or even have the opportunity to. Second stage that's set here is the contrast that we see between Jonathan and the rest of the leadership of Israel. Saul, we read, was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave or what makes more sense, under the pomegranate tree at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. And this Ahijah was wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. In other words, Saul has not moved. In fact, the picture drawn here is that he is and has been staying put under a pomegranate tree. He is still on the outskirts of his hometown with his 600 men and a few others. And we now meet Ahijah who is the great-grandson of Eli. Remember Eli's evil sons, Hophni and Phinehas? 
whom the Lord literally took out because of their gross sins when they were the priests of God. The Lord made known through Samuel that Eli's house, his descendants, would come to an end and be rejected as God's priests because Eli wouldn't discipline these two sons and because they were, as the, as the scripture says, blaspheming the Lord by their words and behavior. But we see here what? We see Eli's great-grandson, Ahijah, was still recognized as a priest by Saul and who knows who else. In fact, verse 3 says he was wearing this ephod there with Saul, which is the white garment worn by the priest. In that garment, the priest was supposed to be carrying the umen and the thumen, which were the ways that they cast lots to, to know God's directions and specific questions trying to be discerned. You notice who didn't even bother with that? Saul. Saul, why does the author give this information about Saul and who this priest is? Well, it must be pretty important, and it is. Here are the leaders sitting there. Is Saul, whose dynasty has been rejected and that has been communicated to him. And he's being assisted by Ahijah, whose priestly line has been rejected. Since Samuel has left the scene, Saul has no authorized prophetic direction. He has a rejected priestly line with him instead. What help can such a king and such a priest give in this desperate situation with the Philistines. Saul, having replaced the dynamic counsel of Samuel with the disgraced and rejected counsel of the house of Eli, has literally lost his way and is able to do little more than grasp at the tethered shreds of what some see and is his lost credibility. What a contrast. How's this going to play out? Well, whereas the commander king, Saul, publicly dishonored the Lord through fear-inspired disobedience, we saw in the last chapter, Jonathan the warrior would bring honor to the Lord through what? His fearless faith. His fearless faith. The third part of this stage being said, finally we see the impossible place that Jonathan wants to carry out this plan. It might as well look impossible. Everything else looks impossible. Now this is a geography lesson that's really important to get here. Within the passes we read by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. 
The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sinan. I don't know how many rocky crags you've seen that have names, but they're usually pretty distinctive when they do. We all know there's one particular one in the canyon, the lighthouse. Okay, These, these places have been named because, because they're so distinctive. The Philistine main force is at a little town called Michmash. That's where the camp is, the main camp. But they just sent a detachment of that main force to establish this outpost or garrison that will protect a pass leading to Michmash. Some impossibly rough terrain was between Jonathan's planned route and this outpost. He wasn't going to go through the main pass. That was the easy way. What he did was a little south of where this main pass was. This wadi was running from northwest to southeast and ends up in the Jordan River. Okay, Everybody around here knows what a wadi is, correct? Usually it's a dry riverbed been cut by when there's storms in the, in the rainy season. In Israel, it looks a lot like around here sometimes. Okay? This wadi kind of flowed into this deep part that we're talking about here, and it was extremely deep. And you notice there's a description of Jonathan and his armor bearer climbing out of it. So you had to come to this place on the edge of this deep watershed called the Wadi, go down into it, it's probably dry, and then climb out of it. And this outpost was sitting over here on this other side, on the north side. And it was guarding this pass that's this way. So Jonathan is essentially coming around behind the main pass because of the terrain here. In other words, he has a crazy but decent idea and plan. So, that's where Jonathan would attempt to go, and he was hoping to do this with his little two-man force and do what the Philistines would never expect, because for a group of soldiers to get to this outpost going this way Jonathan's going would not even be considered a remote possibility by either army. You can tell by the exchange between him and the Philistine centuries later that they weren't worried at all about a couple of guys climbing up to them from the steep incline of the river bed below, the dry river bed below. Does that make sense? Okay, that's really important in this whole thing. Okay, the stage is set. Now we see that God acts through Jonathan's faith-driven initiative here. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be, or perhaps... The Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many 
or by few. Now, right now, what's your first reaction to that? Does it sound like something you would say? If you heard somebody say it in here, would you immediately go, yeah, but they're crazy anyway? Or would you say, well, Jonathan's already taken the initiative to do what God wanted Saul to do earlier with the garrison. His God sure must be big. Because that's what's going on in Jonathan's heart. We need to notice some things here. Jonathan was offering himself to the Lord, not demanding something from the Lord. In other words, he's not trusting his own very daring plan. This is not optimism. It is faith, faith in the face of nothing optimistic except what? Who God is. Jonathan clearly states the basis or the reason for his faith. Faith arises in such a situation because it looks not at the circumstances, but to God. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What a statement of faith. And he knows his history. It wasn't all that long ago that this guy with the first sound in his name of a guh named Gideon also went through something sort of similar to this. And because of his knowledge of God and how God has worked and how God could work at his own pleasure, it may be that God would work for us. Or perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Or the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, or perhaps the Lord will help us. The point is, it may be, or perhaps, are very, very important words here. This is not blind faith or faith in the idea of faith, which is all we see in our culture these days. Have you noticed? Just have faith. And my first question is, in what? In having faith. It's a circular argument that has no object. It's as if Jonathan is saying something like this. God can do mighty works with very small resources. And God may be glad to do it in this case. And as he looks at his armor bearer, he says, And how can we know unless we place ourselves at his disposal? In other words, Jonathan's faith is imaginative. Come, let's go. Perhaps the Lord will act for us. And his faith is also, though, beautifully balanced, is it not? It may be, perhaps. We can learn so much here 
How many in our day think that to say it may be, or perhaps, actually undermines their faith, so they never say it, or think it? Or it's anathema to say, the Lord's will be done. Ooh, you're not really believing that God can do this. That faith must always be certain, must always be dogmatic, and absolutely positive, or it's not faith. Is that what we see here? No. But a lot of people think that's what faith is in our day. They always have. And so they either don't ever walk towards true faith, knowing that they'll never be absolutely certain, or they try to muster what? Muster up some hyped-up emotional certainty and blind optimism kind of faith, which looks more like arrogance. Or on TV, it looks like charlatanism than anything that we see by the saints in the Bible. Jonathan's perhaps, or it may be, is both he confesses the power of the Lord, does he not? And at the same time, his statement retains the freedom of the Lord to act as he wishes. And both are together. Faith does not dictate to God. As if the Lord is its errand boy. Faith recognizes its degree of ignorance. And faith knows it doesn't and hasn't read the transcript of God's divine decrees for most situations. This does not cancel excitement and hope, which is another argument here against what we read. I think instead it enhances excitement and hope. Who knows what the omniscient God may be delighted to do against these uncircumcised Philistines. Can you hear him saying that? Who knows what the omniscient God may be delighted to do. That's exactly how we see Jonathan's armor bearer respond when he says, Jonathan, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Who would go with somebody with this plan? This guy is not stupid. Who would even consider that? Somebody who also knows the Lord and who knows that this guy knows the Lord well enough. To shout out this theology and truth about the God he knows before he steps out. Now, Jonathan had proposed a sign to indicate whether the Lord would have them go or not. Did you notice that? If the garrison outposts called for them to come up, that would be the Lord's green light. For us, it would have been, oh no, we're dead. This isn't going to work. I was being presumptuous. 
The Philistines saw them. They delivered some insults. And you notice that the Philistines saw them because Jonathan and his armor bearer, as they went down into this wadi, was the only place that they could really be seen. When they got to the side underneath where these guys were, as they were climbing up, they couldn't see anything. But they showed themselves as they were sneaking down there, and they hurled some insults at them. Come up to us and let us make you know something. That's the literal translation reflected in various different ways, but it's the literal translation that you see in the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version and the King James. A more paraphrased rendering is in the New International and the Holman Christian Standard, which reads, Come on up, and we'll teach you a lesson. That's kind of what's being uh, really said. Jonathan and his arm bearer climbed up. And in the narrow confines of the rocky, oh, and all that in your text is the way to say it's a half acre. The furlough and all that stuff, it's, it's about a half acre, but it's not just this open field like we see out here. It's this narrow, rocky place where a couple of guys could do some serious hand-to-hand combat because the enemy couldn't just rush them all at once. It was like one at a time. It's like the pass of thermopathy. So, in that narrow, confining place, half acre of rocks and rough terrain, they immediately disposed of 20 Philistines. As Jonathan cut them down and the armor bearer finished them off as they were laying on the ground. It's a gory scene. Jonathan's sign here amounted to a prayer that the Lord would give him a military advantage. And by expecting God's help, he was ready to act boldly when it came. And I hope we see that. This is not some magical formula. We don't need somebody to to write another book. The prayer of Jonathan. There's already been the prayer of, well, we won't mention it, but it's worthless. Here's a little prayer in the Bible. Let's write a book and make some money. And you can pray this and it... God will answer because he did there, and he has to now. Okay, We don't see that here. This is a prayer that the Lord would give him a military advantage, and he would know whether the Lord was in this or not. There is no doubt in Jonathan's mind that it was the Lord who used them to bring about the incredible results that we see then in verses 15 through 22. Not only was the Lord powerfully with them, the Lord also added an extra special display of nature form in the form of an earthquake. And didn't we see that before when he had some things to say? There was a great storm, remember that? Scared the Israelites to death and let them know that, hey, God could speak. Didn't even have to speak. And they were history. It did get their attention, but this was for a different purpose. The two basic results of Jonathan's faith-driven attack upon this Philistine outpost, well, you've heard it. What would you say they were? 
terror and confusion. Two immediate results of this. Again, the Holman Christian standard rendering of verse 15 captures this well as the Hebrew root here is used three times, this root that's used in to be terrified or terror itself. We see it three times right in a row in this one verse. And it would be, and it reads like this. And other translations, it's, it's, we see panic and some other related words that are also very descriptive. But this helps just see the, what's really going on. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields and all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. That's important and it's missing in some versions because the way the grammar is in this text, the terror comes from God working through these different events. So, terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields and to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. Notice that this terror-induced panic spread because the Lord was behind it. Um, Where else do we see that in Scripture? Several places in battles. One place where people were speaking the same language and God decided to send them away by changing each group's language had to be a terror-filled situation. Tower of Babel. So, working to bring victory by the Lord being behind this, God saved Israel this day, which is what we read in, in our last verse for today in verse 23. But how did this victory actually happen? Verses 16 through 22 describe three groups of Israelites who were so encouraged by the sudden terror and confusion and panic of the Philistines that they suddenly just had enough courage to join the fight. Did you notice that when we read it? Very strange. First, in verses 16 through 20, Saul... And the people and men with him in Gibeah. And how did that happen? Well, Saul and Saul's watchmen noticed that something very strange was happening to the Philistines. And you got to realize that the, the, the area we're talking about here, these places were only separated by a couple of miles. It's not like, hey, the nearest big city to Amarillo is Lubbock, and it's two and a half hours and 100 miles away. Okay? That's, it's, these watchmen, you could see a long way, and the word of mouth spread really, really quickly. But they couldn't miss this. So we see in verses 16 to 20 that the Saul, Saul and the people and men with him in Gibeah noticed that something very strange was happening to the Philistines everywhere they were, in their huge camp in Michmash, in the outskirts, all over the place. There was panic. The last part of verse 20 says, Every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great 
confusion. They were fighting against one another. That's how bad this was. Killing one another in total confusion. And you ask, how could that happen? Well, God used Jonathan and his armor bearer to start it by waylaying 20 soldiers on the way in this outlandish attack, and then God's terror just filled them all. This was his work. And Saul, who had been doing nothing and didn't know what was going on, but did, he did find out that that son of his was gone again. Um, we throw that in there just because, uh-oh, Jonathan's gone again. He's probably doing what I should have done. How could this have happened? Okay, you can go down that trail as well. He told his fake priest to stop with the show of religiosity with the ark. He was trying to use religion here, not, not live by faith. Hey, let's get the magic box up here again. Um, they already should have learned their lesson about that earlier when it was captured, but they didn't. It's typical Saul, is it not? Let's get the ark. We don't have Let's just bring it up here. Then Saul and all the people who were with him when they saw this happening rallied and went into battle. Second, in verse 21, there were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines, but even they, hear that? Even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Why, why had they gone to join the Philistines in the first place? Why had they sided with them? Typical, in every war that's ever happened, there's large numbers of people whose lives are threatened, and the only thing some of them can do is just put up with it, be there and not cause any trouble, um, many others try to leave and do something about it, but this is the group of people who just said, well, they're here, we'll deal with it by just letting them do what they want. Even those people rallied and were with Saul and Jonathan. And then in verse 22, likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into battle. You got this picture? Saul and the people who were supposed to be the army went, finally. And then the people who were with the Philistines said, uh-oh, we're on the wrong side. Something's happening. And they went with them. And then all these Israelite creatures who were hiding everywhere in the land, terrified to death to even show their face, pop up out of their holes and hiding places and join in the chaos, running after the panicked Philistines. It's an unbelievable scene. Now we're going to leave the story right here, and you can read it for yourself where we pick up next Sunday. But there's some strange things still left to happen. But this day of reckoning, you see, is not over yet, as we'll see next week. Even so, we need to take stock right now of all that God has done. Let's just list it. What has God done? 
Well, he's given Jonathan the courage and faith to initiate the attack against the Philistines for the second time. God has empowered Jonathan's efforts to gain an unprecedented advantage. God has given Jonathan an armor bearer who was loyal and also trusted in the Lord's working. God has thrown the entire Philistine army into chaos, confusion, panic, and utter terror. God caused an earthquake that further demonstrated his intervention into this whole episode. God used the Philistine confusion and panic to rally Saul and all the people with him into battle. God used the Philistine confusion and panic to rally the Hebrews who had sided with the Philistines. God used the Philistine confusion and panic to rally the Hebrews who had hidden themselves. God supplied the Israelites with all the swords and armor they needed because they were killing each other and running for their lives. Did you see that one coming? You ever wonder where all their swords and weapons would come from? And we see that God, by this action, got rid of, at least for a little while, the Philistines in the central hill country of Canaan. God was busy. God was pleased to work in this way to show that their faith needed to be in him. And remember, that was the whole issue with the king thing with Saul. Jonathan reminds us that Christians do not have the answers and don't have to have all the answers to our prayers before we act daringly in faith. I think uh, the Sunday school lesson actually mentioned that this was a revolutionary development at that time, right before the Great Awakening. All we truly need is a faith that believes that God is able to triumph by many or by few. All Christians, all of us, should dare then to live boldly for the Lord at all times standing firm in the truth and bearing witness about Christ and his gospel of salvation. It may be, perhaps, God will be pleased too. William Blakely, Blakey writes, The true secret of all spiritual success lies in our seeking to be instruments in God's hands and in our lending ourselves to him to do in us and by us whatever is good in his sight. And most of us are pretty much spiritual lawyers. We try to broker deals with God. You do this, I may step out a little more. You do this, I may be more committed. You do this, I may you fill in the blank. This is a great example of not operating that way. 
of realizing that God is God. And we make ourselves available to him. And he is the one who knows how best to work through us. John Knox, the great Protestant reformer in Scotland, is famous for declaring that in the face of really serious danger um, called life and death situations, he said, one man with God is always in the majority. Down through history, God has raised up men and women who knew God well enough to operate on a daily basis with that mindset. So we cannot, we must not, just resign ourselves to sitting under the tree. Despondent over the evil in our day. Of which we are very aware it is growing. Instead, we must together encourage one another to step out in faith knowing that with God we will certainly be a majority for if it is his gracious will nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few we can't write the script out ahead of time and then have a sign up sheet on the back wall for who wants to do what individually and corporately we need to learn how to think this way Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's pray. Oh God, what an example of your great work through your people. And we know there's much more coming in this incredible Old Testament account. We... We know that we should offer ourselves for your service and, and put a period right there and let, and let you work through us in ways that you've gifted us and ways that you've put on our hearts to be used in, in so many different ways to stand for you and your, and your redemptive plan and your glory uh, here in the world that you've put us in. We also know that as we offer, that may mean stepping forward into scenes of action that may be scary, that may be unique, that may be different from what we want to be comfortable in. And we pray for you to give openings and strength so that we will look to you, so that we may be moved by your spirit and your power to courageously uh, use the opportunities that you provide and be confident in your grace to empower our efforts because nothing can hinder you from saving by many or by few. Oh God, we worship you to focus on your character, on who you are, on your greatness, your sovereignty, your majesty, your grace, your love, 
And we know that you've called your bride to stand for you in this world. We ask that you would empower us to do that more wisely, more courageously, individually, and as a little body of believers here in the Texas Panhandle. Oh, Lord, thank you for sending your son for us, making it possible for us to stand in his righteousness before you, our great King, Almighty. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.